Hello, I'm Richard Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can find out how they can help you build your own website at squarespace.com. The Guardian. All of these imaginary borders of language, of politics, of religion, will be broken down when the human things that connect us surface. So originally I come from Libya and I want to tell people about our culture, about our problems, about our society, and the best way I find is through literature. That's what this book fair is about, translating into different languages and getting books to open doors across cultures. It's an exciting time to be an African publisher, it's an exciting time to be an African writer, I'm sure. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. In the week the Man Booker International shortlist was announced in a shiny new format that honours individual books instead of a lifetime's achievement, we're travelling the globe in Kensington, examining literature from all over the world at the London Book Fair. Three of the six publishers to feature on the International Booker shortlist were clustered in a section of the huge hangar devoted to independent publishing, an area containing its own micro-section dedicated to the very smallest of small indies called the Small Press Zone. So that's where we headed, on a hunch that it is these little firms and the passionate people who work in them that are prizing open the door to the riches of literature beyond the Anglophone tradition. One of the latest arrivals on the UK publishing scene is Casada Republic, a publisher from Nigeria who opened up a UK office just this week. Casada's founder, Bibi Bakara Youssef, arrived at the fair with three books, including a novel by a writer from Nigeria's northern region, El Nathan John. But when Claire Armistead caught up with Bakara Youssef just after the launch, she began by asking her, why here? Why now? Casada Republic started nearly 10 years ago in Nigeria, Abuja. 10 years later, we're about to take the world, starting with the UK. And the UK is a great place to start because the UK, I think, needs a new infusion of energy and excitement. And it's a new infusion of African writers and African writing. And I think, I feel that it's a good time to be here because the UK is even more diverse than it was when I was growing up in the 80s. And so I think with the diversity in the UK, we need more diverse writing and more diverse publishers to inject a little bit of life into the UK publishing market. And it's, it's an exciting time to be an African publisher. It's an exciting time to be an African writer, I'm sure. One of the three books is, you could call it Lagos Noir, could you? Which is a crime novel set in the, one of the world's fastest growing and biggest cities. Does this hook into an existing tradition of crime writing or is this something new? The crime novel you're talking about is by Leia Denley, Easy Motion Tourist. Certainly, there's, a, there's been a long tradition, not as vibrant as we would like it, starting with the Heinemann series of crime fiction, starting with Alechia Madi to some of the Paysetters series, where the, it's about fiction for young adults, crime mixed with thriller, romance. But I think with Leia's Easy Motion Tourist, we're beginning to see a new energy or around crime following the tradition of um, hard-boiled crime you find in, in, in America and also a bit of the mystery you find in the UK as well. So we're seeing a combination of the two traditions coalescing in Easy Motion Tourist. 
And Born on a Tuesday, which is the particular book we're talking about now, is, is a literary novel, not a genre novel, isn't it? Do you observe these distinctions, El Nathan? Well, I'm glad that it's, it's been called a literary novel. Um, I set out to write a story. I think that more than the genre distinctions, I'm interested in the type of narratives that are coming out of the space that I, I live in. And whether it's crime thriller or it's, it's literary fiction, it's important to add nuance to the current conversations around, for example, northern Nigeria and the things happening in northern Nigeria, adding more dimensions to the news, to the very easy stories of bombings and kidnappings and shootings, adding human stories to the stories of places and events. Just tell us a little bit about the setting for people who don't know about the geography of Nigeria. Most of the Nigerian fiction we're familiar with comes out of Lagos or, and the south. And this is very much out of the north. And the north, it's associated in the news headline with Boko Haram, with these horrific things that are going on. Is that the area you're from personally? I'm from Kaduna, which is north central, north central Nigeria. So yes, I, I'm, I am from the north, and, and it, it is true that there is a certain type of story that comes out of northern Nigeria. However, I must say very quickly that there is a robust body of writing from northern Nigeria in Hausa. Um, the problem is there's not enough translation from Hausa into English and, and, and back. So that is why we don't see a lot of these stories, whether it's, it's the, it is what is called the Kano market literature or the, the romance literature from Kano in Hausa, you know, or novels that come out of Kano, Sokoto, Kaduna, written in Hausa. My novel is set in a place that not many English novels are, are set. It's in the north, northwestern Nigeria, in Sokoto, which is the caliphate city of northwest Nigeria. And it is the scene of a lot of, we say, conflict of ideas and even of faith. So that this character shows us a, a glimpse into the lives of people that live you know, in this conflict. But it's not set in Maiduguri, which is where all the cross-border raids are happening and the, all the schoolgirls were kidnapped, is it? You've, that's a deliberate decision, that you haven't put it in Boko Haram territory, to simplify it. Yes, exactly. I was not trying to write a treatise on Boko Haram. I was trying to show an insight into the lives of, of human beings who are normally faceless and merely statistics. People say, for example, there are nine million Almajiri, and Almajiri being uh, young people who seek Quranic education, the word meaning disciple. Uh, there are nine million of them, and that's all we hear, right? And people think, oh, they cause trouble and all of that. But they're human beings with lives as complex as any one of us with aspirations and hopes and dreams. So Dantala is your, your hero, who is a boy from a small village who goes to one of these um, Quranic schools because his father is no longer around, his mother can't cope. And he finds an, a whole new set of relationships in this Quranic school. And in particular, he finds a patron. Tell us about these central relationships. Yes, Dantala, in the course of his journey, meets a lot of people that fill in the role of, of a father figure and brothers whom he has lost his father physically his brothers you know through the distance in their relationship and so throughout the novel he sort of seeks to fill these roles you know with new brothers and new fathers and the novel explores the relationship between boys and and men and how they bond and i could say love between boys and mentorship between men and boys 
people who turn out to be patrons, like Sheikh, who's the, the patron, who turned out ultimately to be the patron of my main character. He's a very clever young man and he already speaks Arabic and Hausa and he's le he teaches himself English during the course of the novel. And the sections, the chapters, are peppered with bits in handwriting of him um, writing out dictionary definitions, one of which is patron. And patron is a very sort of central concept to this, what it means in English, what it means to him in Hausa. You, you have a sense of that it's a, a unit of a culture that maybe we don't quite understand in the same way that he doesn't quite understand the English meaning of it. Yes, the dictionary entries for us an, an entry point into the way he sees the world and how the words become different entry points into his philosophy and in the way he sees the world. So where he has the patron entry it tells us how he sees the whole system of patronage, starting, of course, with his immediate environment, the immediate people around him, and the immediate instances of patronage around him, and of course, which is reflected in the larger society, you know, the whole patronage system, political, religious, and otherwise. And another word is Derby. Tell us about Derby. I mean, that's very comic. It is a very comic novel. It's a, it's a very violent and a hard novel in some ways. It's also very humanly funny. Yes, I mean, he's perplexed at his very close friend's uh, obsession with, with English football and the whole idea of a derby, you know, where, you know, whether it's Manchester City and, and Manchester United having, having a game and how it becomes as real as it is in England in a place like Northwest Nigeria, how these things are carried over through cultures and how he cannot understand how this young man who is just fresh out of secondary school, is so obsessed with English football, you know, and how, of course, this shows that ultimately people are human beings and human beings will connect through the things that they love, whether it's football, whether it's politics, whether it's culture, whatever it is, and that all of these imaginary borders of language, of politics, of religion, will be broken down when the human things that connect us surface. There are elements of this society in which he finds himself that actually pose a problem for you, or a challenge, not a problem, a challenge for you, for the narrative of the book. So, for example, his relationship with the sheikh, his patron, where he's taken on a sort of a secretary, he's the trusted protégé, but there is a question about how far that would go. So when he falls in love with, with the sheikh's daughter, would the sheikh allow him to marry his daughter, or would that be a step too far within this system? Likewise, how do you pursue a romance between such a sexually segregated society, between two young people? Yes. All human beings love, but we love in different ways. And the processes to love differ depending on culture. And no matter how segregated a society is, human beings share certain things and people will find a way to love. No matter the rules that you put up, no matter the barriers to all of this, people will find ways around it. People will love, people will find human connections. And so in a way, it reflects the larger theme of the novel, which is that in spite of all of the politics, in spite of all of the violence, in spite of all of the difficult subjects that we talk about, there are human connections and that there is humanity in every space that you look at. And it is a call, if you like, to challenge that people should look beyond the little two-minute you know, news items that talk about bombings to the human beings behind the news stories and why they are important and, and how they live and the things that make us similar to them. 
This is your first novel and it's set in a very particular geographical area. Might you write a novel of Lagos? Might you write a, a novel beyond Nigeria? My interests lie in many places. However, I'm still looking at the area around northern Nigeria. There are quite a lot of stories that need to be told. I've just finished a non-fiction piece, um, a bit of a long essay about transgendering men in northern Nigeria. And I think that this is, you know, another very huge area that we can talk about. There's, there's a lot of stories to be told in northern Nigeria. I, and yes, I, as my, you know, interests begin to... I mean, as I have different experiences, I will keep writing. And I may stay in northern Nigeria, I may go out of northern Nigeria. In this excerpt, I talk about food and philosophy about food, which is very common in, in the Hausa language. The sugarcane here is sold in long, fat pieces. The way the skin is scraped, you would think they had competitions for who could scrape the cleanest. Few things are like sugarcane. When I want to chew it, I do not like having one or two small sticks because that will just make me want it more. And if I cannot have it, then I will be irritated that the longing for it has been created in me. But these long, fat ones, they make you remember Allah's goodness. I wonder sometimes if Al-Jannah will have food. In Bayan Lai, I asked Malam Junaidu about this and he said that, inshallah, Al-Jannah will have sweeter things. I still wonder what things can be sweeter than sugarcane. Perhaps it is just Santi talking. Santi is an enjoyment of food that makes you close your eyes and say and do foolish things. But I think that maybe we should know if Aljanna will have sugarcane. I'm belching and chewing and swallowing. I reach the very last bit and it falls from my hand. As I struggle to save it from reaching the dusty floor, I step on it. I want to scream. I am annoyed. There is something about the last piece of anything. It is like the enjoyment is summarized in that last piece. It is the final thing that makes the experience complete. Except if you deliberately throw it or give it away, losing that last piece is like going on a long journey to deliver a message, then finding upon arriving that you left it at home. I pick up and examine the piece of sugarcane I have stepped on. It cannot be saved. Reluctantly, I throw it back to the ground. All the santi is gone with that last piece. There's a lot of food in this novel and there's a lot of bodily functions in it, isn't there? I know having grown up with kose and cocoa as well, you know, you just find all these foodstuffs that are not like anything that we have here and you don't actually have to explain them. That, I mean, you don't make the effort to tell an English audience what it's like. I mean, especially because it's written in the first person, I wanted to keep it true to the character, true to the narrative, and I also did not want to apologize for writing using the words that I would normally use when I'm speaking in English. If I was in Kaduna, for example, I'd be like, oh, I want to go and buy Kose. I will not say, oh, I want to go and buy Kose, and this is what Kose is, right? In the same way that people who pepper their literature with French words and do not apologize, or German words and do not apologize, I will pepper my literature with Hausa words, which is the language of my character. And I feel like we've gotten to a point where we do not need to apologize, whether by use of italics or by explanatory uh, phrases. So I think that if people are interested enough in our fiction, they will find out what those things mean. And ultimately, of course, in context, you can get the general idea you know, about what this is. If you want to know more, you, there's Google. 
So, Bibi, you co-publish with Emma Shercliffe, and Emma's here as well. And it's a sort of strange partnership in some ways, in that Emma lives in Abuja and is English, and you're Nigerian, you live in England, and you're doing the English end of it. What is the importance of this partnership, and how did it come about? So, we started 10 years ago. And so when I was moving back to the UK, I felt that with the move to the UK, it would be really important to have somebody, another person, who has experience about the UK market. And because I've worked with Emma before in Nigeria on Ankara Press, launching the romance imprint, I felt it would be a good partnership to have Emma on board, number one. Number two, I felt that there's a conversation in the UK about diversity. And when we talk about diversity, it should not just be about the people who are in publishing, but also the content of publishing. And it's important that whoever's publishing must understand the nature of diversity. And I felt that Emma, as much as she's white and your typical publishing person with a name like Emma and Oxbridge and all of that stuff, you know, she's lived in Nigeria, she understands Nigeria in it, even as much as it's a short while that she's lived there and she can never truly understand it with the same kind of depth unless you've lived there for a long period. But I think she has a certain understanding and sensitivity that she brings to the company. I felt it would be a good partnership if she was willing to come on board and she, she was open to it. So Emma, from your point of view, you're in Abuja, you're, you have a background in mainstream, very mainstream publishing. What was the appeal for you, apart from having found yourself in Abuja? <laughs> so yes, a very mainstream publishing. I began as a, as many people in publishing did, as a Macmillan graduate recruit um, back in 1997. But I had worked in international sales for a long time and in international publishing, so I it had you know some wider experience than the UK. But we find ourselves in Abuja, um, and at that point I'd started a PhD looking at African publishing, and specifically looking at women in the African publishing industry. And I arrive in Abuja, and the obvious person to contact is Bibi um, and I think for me something that sort of feels I feel very passionately about is that it is important that people like me feel empowered to publish African writers because we've said before there's a big debate in the UK publishing industry about the lack of diversity both amongst writers but also amongst publishers amongst the people in the industry and I think if we really need a wholesale structural change that's not going to happen if we're only dependent on either publishers from Africa or unless people like me also feel in some way that they are capable of doing it and as Bibi says you need it needs to be done with sensitivity and understanding and there are certain things certain areas of the business that I think I would still probably defer to Bibi on but in time you know I hope that I would be able to do the full the full works and the change that you're talking about is actually becoming absolutely mainstream in your own rights absolutely I think that we we want our writers our books to be read by everyone in the UK and everyone in the world because I, we think that our writers are telling human stories that has relevance and resonance for all humanity. So we don't want to be in some ghetto somewhere and called African publishing. We want to be publishers with confidence in the same way that our writers are growing in confidence. Mm -hmm. Just one other thing I'd say is that, you know, I've, I've clearly been empowered by Bibi, but I would say that the, the African writing and literary community in Nigeria has been the most supportive and accepting community that I've, I've come across. I mean, really quite different uh, in many ways from anywhere I've ever been. I think that there's so few outlets for publishing that if I go to a meeting of the Abuja Literary Society, which I am the only white face very often, I think writers are just so excited that somebody, you know, be it Bibi or be it me, or be it the other publishers of whom there are, you know, there are some publishing contemporary fiction in Nigeria, are really sort of 
putting their efforts behind publishing African writers that, that it's just not an issue. And I think it's really important because we're all very small, all the African publishers, and so we, there is a big supportive network where everybody supports each other. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. just walked into the Independent Publishers Guild area and it's a, a small contained area with booths in which people are eating sandwiches and having busy conversations and all of the way around the outside and names of publishers I've never heard of, Hookline Books, University of Buckingham Press, Fighting High, Infinite Ideas, Red Planet, Head and Heart. James Clark, Firebrand Technologies. So here you just have a feeling here that there's a whole sort of industry that generally goes under the wire. And now moving along just over to our right, I see Darf Publishers and two publishers are sitting here. And let's just go and say hello. Tell me, who are you and why are you here? My name is Ghazi Giblawi. I'm from Darf Publishers. Uh, I work as an assistant editor. I'm Ghassan Firjani. I'm the managing director of Darf Publishers. You're sitting here with a whole display of books that I've never heard of. Why have I never heard of them and what are they? They are uh, translated books from Arabic. They come from different Arabic countries. Ones we thought that weren't well represented in the English translated market. These are books we care a lot about. We got books from Libya, from Yemen, from Sudan, from Eritrea. And a couple of books translated from the Italians as well. And then you've got some sort of classic-looking books there by Washington Irving, who These we've heard of. our backlist. We've been around about around 30 years now, and this is the backlist. We had those for 20, 30 years, and we decided to go on a new project of the translation of fiction to keep it modern. And where do you find your translators? When we started this project three years ago, we wanted to start with us young, and our authors are not known as well, and the translators... Most of them, this was their first project. We talked to a few friends who are in the field, like Banibal magazine, and where they train a lot of people like that. So that's where we picked them, you know. And I noticed there that you've got a book there translated by T.M. Applin. Who, Thomas Applin. Thomas Applin. Who is Thomas Applin and where did you find him? We found him through uh, Banibal, actually. Banibal is the, the quarterly journal of Arabic literature. Yes, yes. He trained with them and worked for them for a little bit. And we asked him if they knew any translators. So we asked him and we talked to him and he said he would be happy to do it. And when we use translators, we also use an editor to go over the final product. So we make sure it's done really well. We put a lot of care in producing the final product of the books. Unfortunately, we are a well-known company and our authors are not known. So we're finding it hard to promote our books yet, but we'll keep at it. One author there is a book called Chewing Gum by Mansour Bushnaf. Tell us about Mansour Bushnaf. This is one of my favorite books, actually. Mansour Bushnaf is a Libyan author who was imprisoned under Gaddafi for 10 years. And uh, his book fell into my hands uh, through a friend, you know. 
because the book isn't widely available in Arabic either. And when I read it, I fell in love with it, and I thought I'm going to give this person a chance on my own way, you know. So I decided to translate the book and publish it in English to help give him some profile and some known. There's a bit of a boom in translation at the moment. I mean, albeit it's a tiny part of the market. So do you find you're in competition for writers with bigger companies? Is that a problem? Is that why you go for somebody who's not very well known in Arabic as well? That's one of the reasons. But for a long time, I go to events and everybody's complaining. There isn't enough translated books or the big companies don't want to do it. So originally I come from Libya and I want to tell people about our culture, about our problems, about our society. And the best way I find is through literature. As I learned when I was young, I was reading international fiction and I learned a lot about Europe, America, other countries. And when I came over, it wasn't very hard for me to blend in the society. So I think it's the reverse way for me. I want to bring people, different voices, to the English market language. And when you say the English market, you mean England? Are you based in England? We're based in England, based in London. So I want to buy this book, Chewing Gum by Mansour Bushnaf, which I would love to read. Okay. How do I get it? You can go to our website, you can go to Amazon, you can go to a very, very knowledgeable bookshop. You'll find it there. Chewing Gum by Mansour Bushnaf. Our hero looked on as our heroine walked away in the rain, wrapped in her black coat and red shawl. Ten years went by before he was able to whisper into her ear again, ten years during which he remained standing in the exact spot where she had left him in the park, enduring his terrible suffering. Days went by, then months and years. He waited in the rain while she walked on, hoping she would stop, turn and run back. Her red shawl fluttered gently as she headed towards the sunset, revealing her black shoulder-length hair. At first, passers-by gazed at him with consternation and lovers were startled to discover him rooted a few feet away from them. However, in time he became part of the park, indistinguishable from the tree that shaded him all those years. Children played, lovers whispered, drug dealers shook hands, prostitutes made their rounds, conspiracies were hatched, assassinations, kidnappings and rapes were carried out not far from where he stood. Yet he was conscious of nothing except her retreating, shrouded in a black coat and red shawl. His hair grew, as did his beard. His clothes became tattered, his family and friends abandoned him, and the city lost track of him. He became a forgotten feature of a neglected park. Meanwhile, Libya fell into the grip of chewing gum mania. In pursuit of this latest craze, citizens applied for passports, purchased dollars on the black market, and queued up in front of airline offices, desperate to travel overseas so as to bring back the precious commodity. Gum became the rage almost overnight. Mothers listed it in their daughters' dowries and a class of smugglers mushroomed to meet the increasing demand. Such illicit activity was necessary for commerce was deemed an illegal act akin to smuggling and punishable by law. In the local market, currencies rose and fell against the stable value of the gum, whose traders elevated its worth to the status of a bond. Secret study groups conducted passionate debates on the craze, its profitability and its physical benefits. To counter this, television programmes, newspapers and even government loudspeakers tirelessly proclaimed that gum, like shampoo, was an imperialist ploy designed to destabilise the national economy, all of which fell on deaf ears. I'm Jax Thomas, director of the London Book Fair. 
Jax, this is such a huge and overwhelming experience. I've been wandering around, exhibitors from loads of different countries, loads of different subjects. How on earth do you find a shape for it? Well, we've got 130 countries in this year and it's evolved over its 45-year history. We're celebrating 45 years this year. And so starting from a librarian's book fair in the Berners Hotel, which Lionel Leventhal was one of the founders and he's still here on the pen and sword stand today. So you evolve it by looking at what publishers need and want. So you obviously have the trade publishing sector, including children's, which is really, really buoyant at the moment and contributed massively to growth last year because the UK enjoyed 4% growth last year, which is just a huge success story and the first one in probably six or seven years. And then you look at the academic and educational and STM sectors. And then you look at um, where publishers are wanting to do business. And, you know, the business of books is getting books to travel across geographies and languages. And also, latterly, getting books to travel across formats. And so digital opportunities have opened up such a fantastic array of reusing, if you like, content from books. I hate the word content, but it does allow you to take narrative and knowledge and get it into consumers' hands in lots of different ways. One of the areas is independent publishers. Can little publishers afford to be part of something so big as this? We've got lots of different ways of participating in the book fair. So we're sitting in our little pop-up club at the Ivy and people can buy booths in here and operate from in here quite cost-effectively. We also have small press stands, but also for independent publishers, the best and really a, a very good way of exhibiting within the book fair, because you are curated, if you like, and looked after, is through the Independent Publishers Guild collective stand, which is an absolute jewel case of fantastic, feisty, innovative publishers who are really publishing the most fantastic bestsellers. You'll often see a lot of those publishers have got bestsellers and prize winners coming out of their quite modest stance. This year, is there anything you're particularly excited about? Well, I'm actually enormously excited about Shakespeare this year and to be able to join in with the 400 years Shakespeare Lives commemoration has been fantastic because for me, what it's done is to totally exemplify what the book fair is about. We've built a little globe theatre, rather cheekily, but the globe are very happy with it. And we're doing performances of Shakespeare sonnets in seven languages three times a day. Arabic, Chinese, Spanish, Polish, because there is a Shakespeare theatre in Gdansk that's been there for years and years and years. Who knew? I didn't. Um, Hindi and also uh, Maltese, believe it or not. I don't know if I've forgotten a language there. But for me, that totally, totally shows just the enduring power of books, words, content, stories. 400 years on, we are celebrating that. Shakespeare is translated into 100 languages. That's what this book fair is about, translating into different languages and getting books to open doors across cultures. And also, we have Shakespeare apps, we have Shakespeare mangas, we have Shakespeare socks, we have Shakespeare chocolate, all on our Shakespeare showcase. That shows just how books are flexible as well and travel across formats. For me, in one fell swoop, that's the London Book Fair. And just on the outside of the Independent Publishers Guild bit, there's a, a little stall for Aardvark Bureau, which I have heard of, and Gallic. But I wouldn't have actually been able to put them together with the books that they publish. And homing in on the bookshelves, I suddenly spot 
Tracy Farr's The Life and Loves of Lena Gaunt, which we were about to podcast on early in the year and for various timing reasons we didn't. And it's a fantastic Australian novel that was published a while ago, a historical novel about a theremin player. It takes her through the century. And so there's that. And then there's Marcel Proust, In Search of Lost Time and Swan's Way, the graphic novel. So here, again, you just have, that is just such a lovely little nest of publishing that's just sort of sitting out on, in the elbow of the Independent Publishers Guild stall. And I just think it's an example of the energy and the eclecticism of this sector. Laura McCauley, Deputy Publisher at Pushkin Press. Laura, you've moved from one small publisher to another small publisher, a bigger publisher, more established. But you set up Daunt Books, which I didn't even know existed, I'm ashamed to say, until last year when you came in with a very, very good short story writer who took me by surprise. So you've moved now to Pushkin Press. Tell me about your addiction to small publishing. Well, I actually started my publishing career originally as a bookseller. And then I moved to Hodder and Stoughton, which is obviously one of the really, really big publishers. But I found myself back in a small independent company, which it's just it's such a different type of publishing. You have to do everything. So you're involved in every aspect of publishing. You're not just the editor. You're not just the marketing person, not just the publicist. So I really love that. I really love being kind of yeah, involved in all those aspects. Pushkin has actually been around since 1997 and it has published people ranging from Stefan Zweig to Lavinia Greenlaw to the Brothers Grimm yeah. to last year's Booker shortlisted outsider Chigozi Obioma. What is the philosophy of the company? So it, it was established as a publisher for international writing that was always at the heart of what we're trying to do. About four and a half years ago, Adam Freudenheim, who was publisher of Penguin Classics, took over the company. And since then, it's just grown. It always had this incredible backlist of classics, including the Stefan Zweig. But since then, it's grown and it's expanded. And we've published, I think it was quite European-based before, and now we're looking much further afield. So the idea is to find the world's best stories and translate into English, which I think is happening more but it's still not happening as much as it should be. The famous statistic is that only 3% of books in the UK market are in translation, which has actually gone up slightly, yeah. but very, very slightly. So you've really, you could say you've penned yourself into a very small corner of the publishing world. Yeah, that's interesting. People always get excited when a book in translation suddenly takes off. So we, it happens from time to time. So obviously it's Scandinavian crime, Elena Ferrante, which is just a phenomenon, the hundred-year-old man who walked out the window, there are occasional big hits and everyone thinks, okay, this is going to be the beginning, this is a new renaissance for translated literature. Actually, I think that translated literature is always strong and for some reason people seem to be surprised when a hit comes out of translation, but actually it, I think it just, it just has always happened. The interesting thing about somewhere like Pushkin, who takes translation very, very seriously, is we're not looking at these books as, you know, our Scandinavian writer or our Nigerian writer. We're just seeing them as great books. So I, in a way, I don't see it as a small corner of the industry. I see it as the industry. It's, it's the whole of the publishing world. One thing that struck me is that in a lot of the big companies, there's a real pressure to do again the thing that was successful last time. So, for example, you have one Scandi crime author and then they want 
not only that Scandi crime author to do another crime novel, but to buy lots of other ones that do the same. And what I really notice from your list is it is hugely varied. Do you think that that's partly what independent publishers are bringing to the industry, is that you can be a bit more sort of eclectic in your choices? Yeah, I think the best indie publishers do do that. And I think that's incredibly exciting because the financial pressures are different because I think we do have we have more freedom. Obviously, we need to make money. We need our books to be successful. But I think we can take a risk. We can be a bit more flexible. We're not hunting down the biggest books. We're trying to find gems that we can make happen. So, yeah, I, I do think that the best small publishers take risks and often the bigger publishers will notice that and will actually follow suit and will try and imitate what the smaller publishers are doing. What have you got coming up that you're excited about? So the next incredible novel that we're publishing is um, an Indonesian writer called Eka Kurinawian, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly, but he's actually on the Man Booker International long list. His novel is called Beauty is a Wound and it's a kind of epic, sprawling tale of Indonesian history. It's very, very dark, full of gratuitous sex and violence, and it's got this sort of magical realist side to it. So it's almost like Marquez meets Salman Rushdie. It's, it's a really, really great novel. So we've just walked around the corner from um, the Independent Publishing Guild, and I just suddenly spotted someone who I'd met in Beirut back in the day, as you do. And it's Alice Guthrie, who has a badge saying, Arabic translator and editor, very firmly independent. Looking for the people, the sort of movers and shakers who are outside the, the big companies, and we want to find out where the energy of this sector is and what it's mm. doing, and whether it's something new or whether it's always been around. Well, yes, much of the work that I do is for tiny independent presses who you will know of, such as Comma Press and Daft Press, who you might have met just in the IPG. You just talked to them this minute. Ah, right, yeah. So actually I have an editorial role with them, which is really interesting, comparative editing on the Arabic to English translations that they publish. I mean, they're a really important tiny emerging press that are doing work that almost no one else is doing. So yeah, a lot of the stuff that I do tends to be for these tiny independent clients and then the odds, you know, slightly bigger fish such as yourselves at The Guardian. <laughs> so tell me about the, the authors that you've been involved with that you're excited about. Well, there's lots of authors that I'm really excited about, but they'll probably not be anyone that anyone's heard of because that's slightly the nature of the game in our sort of little niche of Arabic literary translation. So I've just discovered, for example, a wonderful Moroccan feminist female writer who's sadly no longer with us, died in her mid-40s in, in about 2006, called Malaika Mustadraf, and she's wonderful, radical, experimental, really grimy, streety kind of Moroccan fiction. She's sometimes known as the female Mohammed Shukri who wrote for Bread Alone, which is, you know, always a bit of a mixed um, compliment, isn't it, to call a woman the female so-and-so, but anyway, we'll take what we can get. So I translated something of hers for Words Without Borders and also for The Common, which is a literary journal in the States, and I will, I hope, be translating her whole collection. She's quite well known in the Arabic-speaking world. And then there's some wonderful young Syrian writers that I work on, such as Rasha Abbas and Zahir Omarin, both of whom do really interesting, challenging, strange and useful literary work around the contemporary Syrian moment and also the Syrian reality that they grew up with, which I find a huge honour to work on. 
there are a lot of American publishers around here, and I, I know a lot of the um, universities in America are better at translation than we are, but they're often translated in quite a niche way by academics or by people who are translating out of their familiar language into a language which they're not so familiar about, which has caused problems for some translations for me that sometimes right. you find they're quite academic and stilted. Do you feel that there's a generational shift happening in how translation is regarded? I think to some extent there is. I think we can get a bit carried away with talk of this shift, you know, and it sort of depends, doesn't it, like anything from where you're looking or on a particular day and so on. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point that, that you make about the sort of academic translation, because whilst that does go on, I can think of loads of brilliant examples of stuff that's been done by the American presses recently that I wouldn't put in that category. I do think that, interestingly, given that they have a lot less arts funding there, you know, you can't really compare the NEA grants to the Arts Council, for example. For Arabic, at least, that is where the energy is, more than here, in the main. And so some of the interlink, Syracuse University, the University of Texas at Austin, you know, some of those presses, Deep Vellum, some of the little emerging ones are doing some really exciting work. So, yeah, I think you don't give up on it. <laughs>